The reading today is from 1 Samuel chapter 16 to 17, and you'll find that on page 287 of your church Bibles. The Lord said to Samuel, How long will you mourn for Saul, since I have rejected him as king over Israel? Fill your horn with oil and be on your way. I am sending you to Jesse of Bethlehem. I have chosen one of his sons to be king. But Samuel said, How can I go? Saul will hear about it and kill me. The Lord said, Take a heifer with you and say, I have come to sacrifice to the Lord. Invite Jesse to the sacrifice, and I will show you what to do. You are to anoint for me the one I indicate. Samuel did what the Lord said. When he arrived at Bethlehem, the elders of the town trembled when they met him. They asked, do you come in peace? Samuel replied, yes, in peace. I have come to sacrifice to the Lord. Consecrate yourselves and come to the sacrifice with me. Then he consecrated Jesse and his sons and invited them to the sacrifice. When they arrived, Samuel saw Eliab and thought, Surely the Lord's anointed stands here before the Lord. But the Lord said to Samuel, Do not consider his appearance or his height, for I have rejected him. The Lord does not look at the things man looks at. Man looks at the outward appearance, but the Lord looks at the heart. Then Jesse called Abinadab and made him pass in front of Samuel. But Samuel said, The Lord has not chosen this one either. Jesse then made Shammah pass by, but Samuel said, Nor has the Lord chosen this one. Jesse made seven of his sons pass before Samuel. But Samuel said to him, The Lord has not chosen these. So he asked Jesse, Are these all the sons you have? There is still the youngest, Jesse answered, but he is tending the sheep. Samuel said, Send for him. We will not sit down until he arrives. So he sent and had him brought in. He was ruddy, with a fine appearance and handsome features. Then the Lord said, Rise and anoint him. He is the one. So Samuel took the horn of oil and anointed him in the presence of his brothers. And from that day on the spirit of the Lord came upon David in power. Samuel then went to Ramah. We're now turning to chapter 17, starting at verse 19. They are with Saul and all the men of Israel in the valley of Elah, fighting against the Philistines. Early in the morning, David left the flock with a shepherd, loaded up and set out as Jesse had directed, He reached the camp as the army was going out to its battle positions, shouting the war cry. Israel and the Philistines were drawing up their lines facing each other. David left his things with the keeper of supplies, ran to the battle lines, and greeted his brothers. As he was talking with them, Goliath, the Philistine champion from Gath, stepped out from his lines and shouted his usual defiance, and David heard it. When the Israelites saw the man, they all ran from him in great fear. Now the Israelites had been saying, Do you see how this man keeps coming out? 
He comes out to defy Israel. The king will give great wealth to the man who kills him. He will also give him his daughter in marriage and will exempt his father's family from taxes in Israel. David asked the men standing near him, what will be done for this man who kills this Philistine and removes this disgrace from Israel? Who is this uncircumcised Philistine that he should defy the armies of the living God? They repeated to him what they had been saying and told him, this is what will be done for the man who kills him. When Eliab, David's oldest brother, heard him speaking with the men, he burned with anger at him and asked, why have you come down here? And with whom did you leave those few sheep in the desert? I know how conceited you are and how wicked your heart is. You came down only to watch the battle. Now what have I done, said David, Can't I even speak? He then turned away to someone else and brought up the same matter, and the men answered him as before. What David said was overheard and reported to Saul, and Saul sent for him. David said to Saul, Let no one lose heart on account of this Philistine. Your servant will go and fight him. Saul replied, You are not able to go out against this Philistine and fight him. You are only a boy. And he has been a fighting man from his youth. But David said to Saul, Your servant has been keeping his father's sheep. When a lion or a bear came and carried off a sheep from the flock, I went after it, struck it, and rescued the sheep from its mouth. When it turned on me, I seized it by its hair, struck it, and killed it. Your servant has killed both the lion and the bear. This uncircumcised Philistine will be like one of them, because he has defied the armies of the living God. The Lord who delivered me from the paw of the lion and the paw of the bear will deliver me from the hand of this Philistine. Saul said to David, go and the Lord be with you. Then Saul dressed David in his own tunic. He put on a coat of armor on him and a bronze helmet on his head. David fastened on his sword over the tunic and tried walking around because he was not used to them. I cannot go in these, he said to Saul, because I'm not used to them. So he took them off. Then he took his staff in his hand, chose five smooth stones from the stream, put them in the pouch of his shepherd's bag, and with his sling in his hand, approached the Philistine. Meanwhile, the Philistine, with his shield bearer in front of him, kept coming closer to David. He looked David over and saw that he was only a boy, ruddy and handsome, and he despised him. He said to David, am I a dog that you come at me with sticks? And the Philistine cursed David by his gods. Come here, he said, and I'll give your flesh to the birds of the air and the beasts of the field. David said to the Philistine, you come against me with sword and spear and javelin, But I come against you in the name of the Lord Almighty, the God of the armies of Israel, whom you have defied. This day, the Lord will hand you over to me, and I'll strike you down and cut off your head. Today, I will give the carcasses of the Philistine army to the birds of the air and the beasts of the earth. And the whole world will know that there is a God in Israel. All those gathered here will know that it is not by sword or spear that the Lord saves, for the battle is the Lord's, 
and he will give all of you into our hands. As the Philistine moved closer to attack him, David ran quickly towards the battle line to meet him. Reaching into his bag and taking out a stone, he slung it and struck the Philistine on the forehead. The stone sank into his forehead and he fell face down on the ground. So David triumphed over the Philistine with a sling and a stone. Without a sword in his hand, he struck down the Philistine and killed him. David ran and stood over him. He took hold of the Philistine's sword and drew it from the scabbard. After he killed him, he cut off his head with the sword. When the Philistines saw that their hero was dead, they turned and ran. Katie, thank you for reading, for a long reading, and uh, good evening. So as, uh, as Woody said, my name's Philip Hyans. I'm one of the members of the church here. One of the nice things, some of us men have been away on the weekend away this uh, weekend, and the nice thing is that uh, people have got to know people they don't know. So there'll be some people who will know my name, and I know your name, but, um, but I guess we don't all know each other, so good to be here with each other. Let's, um, before we look at these, uh, this well-known story, let's pray together. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we thank you for um, the Bible. Thank you that there are uh, these stories, which some of which are very well known to us. But we pray that as we look at them together this evening, that, that you'd help us to learn from them, and you'd also help us to see how they point forward to the Lord Jesus. And we ask that in his name. Amen. So, um, we all make choices that involve choosing other people. Um, but how do we choose? Um, if, you want to, if you want to choose some new friends, how do you choose who you want to be your friends? Um, this year, I guess, is going to be an election year. So for those of us who are old enough to vote, um, we're going to have to choose, or we should choose, who to vote for. Um, perhaps some, some of us here have at times, or may at times, have to choose um, who to appoint to a job or a post that's been advertised. All those sort of situations, there are lots of other situations where we choose people. How do we choose? What, uh, what, how do we go about making decisions? What impresses us? Um, I mean, do you choose a new friend or an employee on their trendy clothes or their smart suit or, or their stunning physical appearance? How are we going to assess, you know, apart from the politics, how are we going to assess the, the individuals, the politicians who are going to ask us for their vote? I think we all know that first impressions are not always very accurate, are they? And it's a problem that, um, that Samuel faced, as we're going to see in today's passage as well. Uh, so if you've been with us over the past few weeks, you'll know that um, the people of Israel, they'd wanted to have a king. Uh, so that they'd be more like the nations around them. And in doing that, in asking for a king to be like the nations around them, they were rejecting God. Uh, Saul, who was Israel's first king, had in, initially, he seemed to be doing really well, but then his true character showed, and he'd failed to be the sort of leader that the nation needed. And God had told Samuel that he was going to provide Israel with a different king, someone who'd be the leader that they needed. If you remember, back in 1 Samuel chapter 13, verse 14, um, Samuel had said to Saul, but now your kingdom shall not continue. The Lord has sought out a man after his own heart, and the Lord has commanded him to be a prince over his people, 
because you've not kept what the Lord commanded you. And as we heard last week um, from Rob, Israel needed a king. And he needed, Israel needed a king who was dedicated to God and who had a heart for obeying God. And now we find out in, in these two chapters, we found out that God has been preparing someone. He's been preparing David to become the leader um, that the people need. But how is God going to bring his purposes about? How's God going to do that? Well, in these next two chapters, in chapter 16 and 17, we'll see um, that the ways in which God works are often quite surprising. It's not often the way we think things might happen or what we might do. Now, of course, these, these chapters are particularly, um, particularly chapter 17 is about David and Goliath. They're very familiar to many of us. Um, but let's not stop um, that familiarity, um, stop us from seeing the amazing surprises that there are about the way that God works and about his ways. So let's first of all look at, as we think about the leader that we need, because David was the leader that they needed, and we're going to think how that also applies to the Lord Jesus, how he's the leader that we need. So the leader that we need, and first of all, a surprising choice. So this is looking at chapter 16. So as we saw there at the start of chapter 16, Samuel is grieving. He's grieving about Saul. He realizes that that was a terrible um, mistake, really. But God tells Samuel to go and anoint one of the sons of Jesse. So Jesse is a guy who lives in Bethlehem. Um, he actually was the grandson, some of you will remember, that lady called Ruth who married Boaz. It's his, his grandson. Jesse had eight sons. Um, they lived in Bethlehem. They weren't a particularly prominent or important family, but there they were. And, and Samuel, of course, is quite worried, so he has to sort of go to arrange a special sacrifice. He needs to have an excuse because he doesn't want Saul's suspicion aroused. Um, and Jesse and his sons are invited to this sacrifice, to this ceremony. Verse 6 and 7 there in, uh, in chapter 16 tells us that when they arrived... Samuel saw Eliab, the first, the eldest of Jesse's sons, and he thought, surely the Lord's anointed stands here before uh, the Lord. But we read, the Lord said to Samuel, don't consider his appearance or his height, for I've rejected him. The Lord doesn't look at things man looks at. Man looks at the outward appearance, but the Lord looks at the heart. And then what follows is like a sort of beauty procession or beauty pageant as as all six more of Jesse's sons are all paraded in front of Samuel. But none of them are the one that God has chosen. So after rejecting those seven, Samuel asked Jesse, well, is that all the sons you've got? Have you got any more? Uh, there is actually the youngest one in, in some Bibles in the little margin, and it even says smallest, the youngest or smallest one. But, but he's, he's away looking after the sheep. And in fact, you know, he was so insignificant, Jesse hadn't even considered inviting him to the ceremony. But he needs to come, so he gets called and brought. And there in verse 12, there's a description of him which is it's not unfavorable, but it's not particularly impressive, is it? It says in verse 12, he was ruddy and with a fine appearance and handsome features. So it's okay, but compare that with how, what, what had been said about um, Saul when he became king, back in, uh, back in chapter 10, verse 23 and 24, we, we read that as, as Saul <clears throat> stood among the people, he was a head taller than any of the others. 
And at that time, Samuel said to all the people, do you see the man the Lord has chosen? There's no one like him among the people. So Saul back then had seemed like a really impressive character, but events showed that he had fatal flaws. In contrast, this this younger son of Jesse, who at this point he isn't even named, we don't even learn his name until verse 13, he's not outwardly that impressive. But this is the one, this is the one who God has chosen to one day become king. And as Samuel anoints him, we read that from that day on, the spirit of the Lord came upon David in power. And as, we, as we'll see over the next few weeks, there was then a long, a long period. The rest of 1 Samuel is really a long period. David doesn't become king till right at the end of 1 Samuel, or the start of 2 Samuel. There's a long period where God prepares him for the task of being king. And during that time, we'll see that he, he was a very different person to, the, to Saul, who he's going to replace one day. But let's just look back again at verse 7. Verse 7 is perhaps the, the important, the key verse in this chapter. As, as Roz prayed in, in our prayers, man looks at the outward appearance, but the Lord looks at the heart. What do you think, what do you think the Lord saw when he looked at David's heart? What do you think? Did he see a pure, clean, perfect heart? No, of course he didn't. Um, back Last autumn, when we were looking in and when we were going through Mark's gospel, we saw in chapter 7 of Mark's gospel that Jesus said there's all sorts of bad stuff that comes from our heart. Um, Jesus spoke of the wrong that's in each one of us. Uh, We're all as descendants of Adam, corrupted and predisposed to evil. Our sinful nature in us doesn't want to do what's good. And that's not saying that we can't do any good. We're still made in God's image but sin's tentacles corrupt every part of every person. But, but this statement here in 1 Samuel 16, verse 7, that's not contradicting what Jesus later says in Mark chapter 7. Although the sinful nature is still present in each heart, God also sees our good intentions, and he sees the devotion of our heart. So do you love God? If you love God... God sees that. He knows that. He sees. Just think again about David. Woody also reminded us of already we've sung, we've sung that Psalm 6, Psalm 23. You know, that's an example, as we think about it, of David's devotion and love for God. How does the psalm go? The Lord is my shepherd. Again, with Psalm 23, it's familiarity. Can diminish the amazing truth that David is declaring there. He's saying, the Lord, the Almighty God, that Almighty God is my shepherd. David knows that God is caring personally for him. He knows that he matters to God. He knows it. And in that psalm, we also see that he's full of thankfulness and praise to God. And he knows that God will stick by him and care for him, even in the darkest moments of life. Of course, David's, if you, when we, we're going to just, I think, go through one Samuel, but two Samuel is all the story of David and his, and when he was king. Um, Saul dies at the end of one Samuel, David becomes king. And he's a very successful, great, successful king of God, a God-fearing king. But, as many of us will know, he messes up dreadfully. 
he commits adultery and murder. And though those sins are really serious and they have, and they have dreadful, serious, ongoing consequences as well, David is truly penitent. He's truly repentant. And so, for example, Psalm 51 is his plea for forgiveness, his trust in God that he will forgive him. We sometimes use the words of that psalm, of that psalm um, here in church as we say the confession together. So I think God saw David's heart. He could see that even though David was a sinner, he could see that he was someone who was trusting in God. And that was in contrast to Saul. Saul, who, as we saw last week, was just disobedient, trying to make excuses. So was this a surprising choice of leader that the people needed? Outwardly, from a human perspective, yes. But with God's perspective, it was the right choice. But before we go on to chapter 17, let's just it's also worth just jumping forward to great David's greater son, as one old hymn describes the Lord Jesus. The Lord Jesus, just think about how we and how people assess Jesus Christ. How do people, how do we or people in general assess him? What criteria do we use in our assessment? In fact, is Jesus rather a surprising choice as the one to save the world? Like Jesus, like, sorry, like David, Jesus to lots of people appeared pretty unimpressive. Back in Isaiah 53 verses 2 and 3, Isaiah talks about a suffering servant, which is a picture of Jesus, of how people were going to think of Jesus. This is what he said. He had no beauty or majesty to attract us to him, nothing in his appearance that we should desire him. He was despised and rejected by men, a man of sorrows and familiar with suffering. Like one from whom men hide their faces, he was despised, and we redeemed him, and we esteemed him not. Not very impressive. And you may remember that Jesus' home townspeople, they didn't see anything in him. And yet, God's verdict at Jesus' baptism had come, You are my son, whom I love. With you I am well pleased. Of course, at the end of the day, it was God's assessment, wasn't it, that mattered. So it's a question that's worth each of us asking ourselves. How, how am I assessing Jesus? Am I seeing the real Jesus? Or am I using wrong criteria to make my decision about him? But let's jump on to chapter 17, to the Goliath story. And now we're going to think about uh, David as an example of the leader we need and think of that this was a surprising victory. So first of all, thinking about David um, as a leader who had the right perspective about God. So we read, or Katie read to us, that the Philistine and the Israelite armies, they're facing each other across a valley. There's a, there was a valley that ran from west to east, from the Philistine territory in the west right through to the Israelite territory in the east. And the armies were sort of standing on either side of this valley, facing off against each other. And as seems, as seems, as has seemed to be common in those days, the, battle, the, the armies didn't often go, didn't necessarily go straight into a battle against each other, but they'd have a champion who would come forward from one side and from the other. And these champions might fight it out, and depending on who won, that might be who won the battle. Well, the Philistines, they had a very impressive champion, didn't they? 
they had Goliath. We didn't, didn't read the verses, but earlier in chapter, chapter 16, the earlier verses, you see how big he was, a huge guy, probably nine or ten feet tall. And he had an amazing, if you look, look at verses sort of five and six, he had an amazing arsenal of weapons and, and armor. And he just struck absolute fear into the Israel's ranks. And of course, overcoming such a giant just seemed like an impossible task. And even Saul, we read in verse 11, Saul and all the Israelites were dismayed and terrified. Even Saul was dismayed and terrified. Now as Israel's king, he should have had a perspective about God in this. Because it wasn't just about which army would win. In the ancient world also, whichever army won uh, the victory had stronger gods. And Goliath's gods would have included that statue Dagon that we heard about a couple of weeks ago. Dagon statue that was in a, in, a, in a temple that fell in the presence of the Ark of the Covenant and had to be put back up. But Saul should have been concerned for gods, had a perspective that was concerned for God's honor, but he doesn't seem to do that, doesn't seem to have that. Now David, he'd come to bring some food supplies to his brothers in the army and also some, interestingly, some gifts of cheese for the commander. And David hears, you know, as he's there, he hears Goliath's taunts and he realizes that in taunting the armies of the living God, David is actually defying the Lord himself. And David, unlike Saul, he brings God's perspective to the situation because he is concerned for God's honor. So, you know, David was a leader with the right perspective. But he was also a leader who put his hope, or a leader in making, a leader who put his hope in God. <clears throat> Goliath was a, was a formidable enemy who was defying the living God. But David knew that with God's help, he could defeat him. And he remembered how he'd uh, how he delivered from the paw of the lion and the paw of the bear while he was keeping his father's sheep. And David simply trusted that God would deliver him from the hand of this Philistine. He put his hope and his trust in God. And he said, "This the battle is the Lord's. He hoped in God. And if you look at, we read in verses 46 and 47 that he, he knew that the impact of the victory over Goliath would make known to the whole earth that there is a God in Israel. It wasn't just simply about defeating the, the, the enemy, the Philistines. That victory would, would bring glory and honor to God. And it would also be an encouragement to all of God's people. So David was someone who was putting his hope in God. But then thirdly, we see that he was a leader who secured victory through apparent weakness. Uh, just a slight diversion before we come to that, because if, if you're someone who's read, been good and read both chapters beforehand, then you might think, oh, this slightly... You'll see what I'm coming to in a moment. David, Because David at this point is, is still young and relatively insignificant. At the end of chapter 16, we didn't read that together now, um, he had already been... He was recruited into Saul's service. One of Saul's servants had recognized David's musical ability and character and noted that the Lord was with him there in verse 18 of chapter 16. But he's still, you know, even though he was, 
in Saul's service, verse 15 here of verse of chapter 17 tells us David went back and forth from Saul to send his father's sheep at Bethlehem. So he was still moving between the royal court and the sheep keeping, sheep keeping, going back to the sheep and then back to the royal court to play music for so and to and fro like that. And that seems to be why at the end of chapter 17 in verse 55, we read that as Saul watched David going out to meet Goliath, he asked the army commander Abner, he asked him about David's family. Now you might think that's a bit odd because Saul's, David's been going there. But it seems that, of course Saul knew who David was, but he'd forgotten. He didn't really remember who David's family was. And he needed to know these details because as we'll see in the next chapter, Saul's promise to Samuel, Saul's promise, sorry, in verse 17, verse 25, would be kept as David becomes Saul's son-in-law by marrying Michal. David, Saul said, you know, the person who can do it can defeat this, this uh, champion, will have the king's daughter and his, his family will not have to pay taxes and so on. So Saul needed to know about the family that would be linked to the royal household. And in fact, in verse 2 of chapter 18, we tell us from that day on, Saul kept David with him and didn't let him return to his father's house. So up till that time, he'd been going to and fro, but from then on, he stayed there. Anyway, so David had arrived at the camp, at the army camp, as we've seen, to bring provisions for his brothers. And the eldest one, Eliab, gets really angry that David is there questioning why no one has come forward to kill Goliath. And when David volunteers to go and fight Goliath, that just seems ridiculous, doesn't it? Someone so young going against this experienced, enormous fighter. And when Saul eventually agrees, Saul wants to kick David out in the best armor he can find, thinking that's the only way that David could possibly win, try to match the military gear. Though, of course, it would be completely unequal even if they tried. But as we well know, David couldn't manage the military gear. And instead, he goes to meet Goliath just with his staff, a sling, and five smooth stones. And Goliath can't believe what he's seeing. He taunts David, who responds by telling Goliath that instead of with sword and spear and javelin, he comes in the name of the Lord Almighty, the God of the armies of Israel, whom you have defied. And then look at verses 48 and, uh, sorry, 48 and 49. As the Philistine moved closer to attack him, David ran quickly towards the battle line to meet him. Reaching into his bag and taking out a stone, he slung it and struck the Philistine on the forehead. The stone sank into his forehead and he fell face down on the ground. David had to use Goliath's own sword to finish him off and cut off his head, at which point the Philistine army retreats, chased by Saul and his army right into the Philistine territory. It really is quite a surprising victory, isn't it? Back in verse 16 there of chapter uh, 17, we read that for 40 days the Philistines came forward, the Philistine came forward every morning and evening and took his stand. Each day for 40, 40 days, these armies had drawn up for battle, army against army, and each day Goliath, the champion, had come forward out of the ranks of the Philistines and issued his challenge. No one had gone forward. And now David, 
the shepherd boy, had defeated and killed him. Do you remember Hannah's song back in chapter 2? As we saw a few weeks ago, that song sets themes that come throughout the book. Chapter 2, verse 10 in the English Standard Version says, The adversaries of the Lord shall be broken to pieces. Against them he will thunder in heaven. The Lord will judge the ends of the earth. He will give strength to his king and exalt the power of his anointed. And as the story through uh, Samuel progresses, that is seen to be true of David, that David is the king and God will exalt him. He is the anointed one. But the Song of Hannah also points to King David's great descendant, the Lord Jesus. And it's remarkable, really, that David, who failed morally so miserably in his later life, is nonetheless, he is a picture for us of the Lord Jesus. As we look at David, we can see a picture of the Lord Jesus. I mean, it's interesting that the armies had faced off for 40 days before David faced Goliath. 40 is a number in the Bible associated with judgment and deliverance. So we had 40 days of, of the flood for Noah and the ark, 40 years of wandering in the wilderness for the Israelites, Elijah fleeing from Jezebel for 40 days and nights, Jesus tempted by the devil for 40 days, and here, 40 days before God brings deliverance through David. And we're now in Lent, where we have 40 days to think on and prepare for Good Friday and Easter and the deliverance that Jesus secured through the cross, his cross and resurrection. God, God using apparent weakness to secure victory was true as David faced and fought Goliath. And in a so much greater way, it was also true as Jesus faced and defeated Satan. Jesus' victory came through weakness. At Jesus' crucifixion, Luke tells us that the people stood watching and the rulers even sneered at him. They said, he saved others. Let him save himself if he's the Christ of God, the chosen one. And Paul in 1 Corinthians talks of Christ crucified, foolishness, foolish, foolishness to Gentiles, but the foolishness of God is wiser than man's wisdom, and the weakness of God is stronger than man's strength. An old Baptist preacher, Spurgeon, wrote, the cross that was meant to be the death of the Savior was the death of sin. The crucifixion of Jesus which was supposed to be the victory of Satan, was the consummation of his victory over Satan. It's so true that in weakness, God's power and victory was seen. And just a bit later, as chapter 18 in 1 Samuel tells us of all the adulation and welcome that David received after killing Goliath. All the crowds came out and cheered and waved for him. So that too is a picture, Spurgeon quite helpfully quotes from Psalm 24. He said this, he wrote this a long, long time ago. Our Lord has won the victory. He to his glory has gone. The angels have met him on the way. They've said, lift up your heads, O gates, and lift them up, O ancient doors, that the king of glory may come in. And they that have been with him have answered to the question, 
Who is this king of glory? They said, The Lord strong and mighty, the Lord mighty in battle, the Lord of hosts. He is the king of glory. Well, as we finish, just three quick final things to take away from these two chapters. So firstly, what do you make of Jesus? If you wouldn't call yourself a Christian, how should you go about assessing Jesus and his claims? What what factors do you use? Like the factors we use to, to assess other people, it's all too easy to use the wrong ones and so come to an inaccurate conclusion. Well, don't do that. And then secondly, God works through weakness. One area where we can often see that is in the response of the persecuted church, persecuted Christians around the world. The Open Doors Prayer Diary recently had, had this uh, story from uh, Christians in, in a Central Asian country. A policeman arrived at an underground pastor's home to arrest him, but he wasn't in. His 10-year-old daughter invited him to wait. She made him dinner, and saying grace, she thanked God for the food and this good man. And overwhelmed by her love, he became a Christian and is now helping protect the church. Isn't that an amazing example of the way in which the Lord works through weakness. And on a personal level, 2 Corinthians 12 verse 9 has been very meaningful to me and to members of my family. My grace is sufficient for you, for my power is made perfect in weakness. God does work through the difficulties and weaknesses in our lives, so let's trust him. And then finally, thirdly, just connected to the theme of God working through weakness is the phrase in chapter 1747 there, the battle is the Lord's. And it's a statement for each of us who are Christians to hold on to and to believe. It may may often seem to us that the world globally as well as locally and perhaps even personally is going out of control. But the Lord is sovereign. The Lord is sovereign. He's in control. The battle is the Lord's. Let's pray together. Heavenly Father, we thank you for uh, David. Thank you for his trust in you. And thank you how he points us to the Lord Jesus. Lord, we pray that in our assessment of Jesus, we may use the right criteria and that we may come to a good assessment of who he is, of who you are. Lord, thank you that you work too in weakness and through apparent weakness, David was able to defeat Goliath and that's such a wonderful picture of how the Lord Jesus in apparent weakness on the cross yet defeated Satan. Help us as we sometimes struggle with weakness to know your power in our lives. And Lord, thank you that we can trust you, that the battle is yours, that you're sovereign and you're in control. We thank you, Lord God, in Jesus' name. Amen. Uh, We've got a couple of questions that have come in. Uh, Nice juicy one, and then nice fun one. So let's go with the um, tricky one first. We've got it on the screen, on its way. Uh, Let me read it out to us. Uh, How come God blessed David's killing of Goliath when only a few books earlier he tells 
not to kill in the Ten Commandments? Is this not hypocritical? Yeah, difficult, difficult question, isn't it? <laughs> I suppose, last, was it last week that Rob was talking about the Malachites? And, you know, we didn't go into great detail, but why, why did they, or why did God say for them all to be wiped out? And there's something about God's judgment of, uh, of evil and of wrong. And this was something, so in a sense, this is God judging uh, the people who are defying him. So that's, that's something that God doesn't tell us to do that. We're, we're, we're definitely not to do that, but that was God. Is that the right way to say it? Yeah, God, God describing, you know, his, his anger against, against, against sin and showing it very practically in that way, really. Mm-hmm. And, and kind of leading on from that, it never calls us to. No, it doesn't, doesn't tell us that, but we're, we're never to do that. We, we leave judgment for God. Yeah, to choose to, to choose to take judgment ourselves. God, in the Old Testament, uses his people. Yeah. And that changes throughout the New Testament yeah. and would never call us to make that judgment call ourselves yeah. and leave that judgment up to him. Yeah. Yep. Yeah, yep. yeah. Yep. Great. Thank you, uh, Philip. And then second question. Uh, this is an interest question, but why is this story such a well-taught children's story? And if you were here this morning for the all-age uh, service, we chose that service um, as Caroline helped us understand it. From an all-age perspective. I, I suppose, you know, the trouble is it's a well-taught story, and it's so familiar, isn't it? So we all know that story, as I said. We all know this story, or most of us know this story really well. Um, and because we know it well, we don't actually see the surprise. <laughs> you know, that's what I was trying to say. There's, there's huge surprise in this story because it's a weak, it's a weak person who, who has, this, has this victory. And, of course, that... That's just a picture of the big Bible story. The, big, the whole big Bible story is of God in his apparent weakness causing, uh, coming in victory. So, so yeah, it's a, it's a great, great children's story, but because we're familiar with it, we, we lose the surprise sometimes. Mm-hmm. It's, it, I mean, it's laughable, isn't it, in terms of, I, th- I think this morning Caroline put something up which is about nine foot, yeah. um, which I think is about projector level, top of the screen level. Yeah. And you think, little David, shepherd boy. Yeah. It's a laughable against it's a jo- all odds. It's a joke, isn't it? Yeah. Um, and through that surprise, which, yeah, wonderful children's story and adult story yeah. for us yeah. as well. But, you know, it just in exactly the same way, the cross, well, that's just a joke, isn't it? How, mm-hmm. can, how, can, that, how can that change the world? Yeah. But it does. Brilliant. Thank you so much, Philip. Thanks for that.